You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Green Mountain Medicine. 2020 has been an extraordinary year, to say the least. And I hope you all are doing well, staying healthy, and taking time to enjoy the positive things in your lives and in medicine. And speaking of the latter, Dylan and I are so excited to share with you this long-planned episode on the SGLT2 inhibitors, which in my opinion is just one more positive thing to add to that list. So let me bring you all up to speed. SGLT2 inhibitors, which are recognized by the suffix glyphosin, have long been used in the management of type 2 diabetes. And these medications act by inhibiting the sodium glucose co-transporter in the proximal tubule of the kidney's nephrons, and so they allow the body to more effectively offload glucose in states of hyperglycemia. Now, we know from randomized control trials as early as 2015 that several agents in this drug class have also been shown to reduce the risk of mortality for heart failure in patients with type 2 diabetes and the risk of mortality in diabetic renal disease. But more recently, new and robust evidence has emerged that suggests the benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors might not be limited to patients with type 2 diabetes, and maybe these agents deserve a place in our arsenal of recommended heart failure and CKD therapies. And in fact, the FDA has already approved apagliflozin in May of 2020 for use in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in patients with or without type 2 diabetes. And so today, we will revisit the evidence for or against a broadened therapeutic role of SGLT2 inhibitors and the anticipated subsequent guideline changes that might follow. But before we begin, I'd like to very briefly summarize three trials that have inspired this conversation. This first one is called Credence, otherwise known as the evaluation of the effects of canagliflozin on renal and cardiovascular outcomes in participants with diabetic nephropathy. Now, this randomized control trial was published in New England Journal of Medicine in June of 2019, and it looked at 4,401 patients with type 2 diabetes and diabetic nephropathy with albuminuria. Patients were randomized to placebo or canagliflozin 100 mg daily for two and a half years. And the primary outcomes included the risk of end-stage renal disease, creatinine double times baseline, and mortality from either cardiovascular or renal causes. Important secondary outcomes included hospitalizations and deaths from heart failure specifically. And this trial found that these outcomes were significantly reduced in the canagliflozin group. However, these results were dampened by a question of increased risk of genital infection from individuals taking canagliflozin. Um, it should also be noted that this trial was halted after two and a half years due to a clear benefit in the canagliflozin group, and that individuals with GFR of less than 30, non-diabetic kidney disease, type 1 diabetes, or uh, patients not on ACE inhibitors or ARB therapy were excluded. This next trial is called DAPA-HF, otherwise known as a study to evaluate the effect of the pagliflozin on the incidence of worsening heart failure or cardiovascular death in patients with chronic heart failure. This was a phase 3 placebo-controlled randomized control trial that really made a big buzz when it came out in New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2019. It looked at 4,744 patients with compensated heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, that is an ejection fraction below 40%, and NYHA class 2 or greater. 
And so in addition to recommended heart failure therapy, participants were randomized to receive either placebo or topagliflozin 10 mg daily. This trial ran for about 18 months and evaluated a primary outcome of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure, which they measured as either increased hospitalizations or urgent care involving IV therapy for heart failure. This outcome occurred in about 16% of the topagliflozin group versus 21% in the placebo group, leading its authors to conclude topagliflozin may decrease rates of worsening heart failure and all-cause mortality, regardless of type 2 diabetes status. One notable takeaway from these data is that the benefit was primarily seen in patients with NYHA class 2 heart failure, but not as much in the class 3 or 4 heart failure patients. This trial also excluded individuals with a GFR below 30, type 1 diabetes, or decompensated heart failure, and the sample size was notable for only having 5% of black patients. About a year later, a new trial emerged called Emperor Reduced, otherwise known as Empagliflozin Outcome Trial in Patients with Chronic Heart Failure and a Reduced Ejection Fraction. This randomized control trial came out in New England Journal of Medicine in August of 2020, enrolling 3,730 patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction for 16 months, randomized to either empagliflozin 10 mg or a placebo in addition to recommended standard of care heart failure therapy. The primary outcome for this trial was cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, and the trial's authors found that both outcomes were significantly reduced in the empagliflozin group, particularly heart failure hospitalizations, which paralleled DAPA-HS findings for its cousin, dapagliflozin. The empagliflozin group also demonstrated a lower risk of severe renal outcomes and a slower GFR decline, but an increased risk for genital tract infections. Notably, Emperor Reduced included patients who had more severe heart failure than those enrolled in DAPA-HF, but it did exclude individuals with decompensated heart failure, severe valvular diseases, and recent ASCVD events. And there you have it, three trials that have inspired our conversation today. And with that context, please allow me to introduce our guests for this episode. First is Dr. Carrie Mahurin, who is a graduating third-year internal medicine resident at UVMMC. Dr. Mahurin pursued her medical school training at the University of North Dakota and will be pursuing cardiology fellowships starting next year. She also remains my go-to source for EKG interpretation assistance whenever I'm on the wards. She's joined by Dr. Jen Bergeron, who is another graduating third-year internal medicine resident at UVMMC. Dr. Bergeron pursued her medical school training at Tufts University and will be beginning a nephrology fellowship next year. She is the best resource I know for urine microscopy interpretation whenever I'm on service. Carrie and Jen, thank you both for joining us today. Hey, Matt and Dylan, it's great to be here. Thanks. Always fun to get the kidney and the heart together in a good way. We are so excited to have you both here with us. So let me go ahead and just jump into our first question since we have so much to unpack. So my first question is for you, Jen, and that's really just talking about the Credence trial. The trial found SGLT2 inhibitor treatment for diabetic nephropathy led to both improved renal and cardiovascular mortality. Can you share with us what your big takeaways from that trial are and what you think it suggests about the interplay between the renal and cardiovascular systems? Yeah, so I think the biggest takeaway from this trial is purely the excitement from the nephrologist. So nephrology is famously the field of negative studies. And to be honest, this is a doozy of a positive trial. Up until this point, there's only been one approved treatment for nephroprotection in patients with type 2 diabetes, and that's the renin-angiotensin system blockade, so ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And those were found 19 years ago. 
plus these medications um, start to split the Kaplan-Meier curve really early on in disease progression, um, even in such short study times. And I think Dr. Joel Toff joked that these medications start to work as soon as patients are walking out into the parking lot. So it's been a while for nephrologists to have something new and, and this exciting in their toolbox that's so effective. The second half of your question about the intricate relationship between the heart and the kidneys, Carrie and I like to joke that they're essentially one organ split into three, or maybe they're soulmates forced apart in space. But regardless, <laughs> this is now the second class of medications that we know have huge effects on both of these organ systems. With RAS inhibition, uh, we got a better understanding of how they're connected with this like neurohormonal access. And now with SGL2 inhibitors, I think the jury's still out on how they're connected. It's pretty obvious that there's some role with volume status as one of the proposed mechanisms, but there's a lot of other mechanisms that people are talking about, such as mediating inflammation, energy consumption, even that sodium hydrogen antiporter that would sort of incidentally affect both of these organs rather than link them together. I think that is a good way to start this conversation off and thinking that maybe we're not dealing with two discrete organ systems. They're all, they are both connected and, and it can really uh, kind of start to form our thinking as we're thinking about how we use these uh, medications uh, in patients that likely have degrees of involvement in, of disease in, in both the heart and the kidney. You know, some, something that we especially think about for something like type 2 diabetes that we know can have um, direct uh, renal toxic and uh, atherosclerotic effects. So where we wanted to uh, then take this discussion was thinking about not only patients with a linking diagnosis like diabetes, but as we think about DAPA-HF and Emperor-Reduced, these were two trials that looked at SGLT2 inhibitors on patients without diabetes. So is the current evidence sufficient to support incorporating SGLT2 inhibitor therapy into routine uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction management? Uh, and if so, uh, what are the risks and costs? Yeah, so I think this is a really important question, um, especially for, for heart failure. Um, when we're speaking about heart failure and studies, we have a ton of studies, and those are all funded based on basically there's a ton of costs that comes out of people that are admitted with heart failure. Um, which is kind of a great little qualitative, quantitative outcome for heart failure to measure. Um, but it's also all aimed at, at reducing heart failure admissions. And that's really the, the main quantitative study that they're looking at. Um, and it's in, in every single study for heart failure. So I think this is a really big, I think these are both really big advancements in that um, because of the primary outcome, you know, there's a lot of, there's three or four different outcomes studied in both of these. Um, but the main driving composite outcome was really driven by the reduction in heart failure admissions. Um, so that's exactly what we're looking for in heart failure studies is does this reduce admissions? And then of course, obviously when we want a mortality benefit, we want symptom relief um, and other things like that. But this is sort of what drives everything from here on out. And it's also happens to be something that's gonna save money. So with that being said, I think that, you know, if we're talking about strictly the person, I think it's definitely worth it. Um, and I think they will be incorporated into the 2021 guidelines. Uh, rumor has it for heart, the heart failure package, and along with the ACE inhibitors and the beta blockers and your spironolactone. Um, I think they, there is rumor that they will be incorporated into that, diabetes or not. And then as a, from a system-wide population standpoint, it's definitely going to reduce cost of um, 
of heart failure. I do think it's so important to just like you broke down, like think about the outcomes of, of these trials and, and how they're reported and how it really the, you know, we, we hear the composite percent, the 5% difference, but that it is driven more by the rate of readmission, rate of admissions versus uh, rate of death. But I really appreciate your point that there's actually a good reason why that's so important to, to how we incorporate this into our treatment. Uh, my quick follow-up um, is just kind of thinking then about um, the spectrum of heart failure patients uh, with reduced ejection fraction. You know, we saw in um, DAPA-HF that it was a more mild levels of heart failure, and then in Emperor Reduced, it was a little bit more severe. Do you think there's a particular place on the heart failure spectrum that these drugs really have a role? So this is also an interesting question with regard to the studies, because they both actually studied a slightly different population. Um, they're both HEFREF, but um, the, the DAPA-HF trial actually looked at, you know, less severe heart failure that was compensated. Um, and then the, the emperor reduced trial really looked at um, a little lower EF. Um, and it was like the majority of them were actually less than 30%. Um, but they were all very compensated. And that being said, they were also better optimized on medication management prior um, to initiation of the SGLT2 inhibitor. Whereas the DAP-HF, they were all on, you know, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, but what they're missing out on there is the ARNIs, which are now found to be better than the ACE inhibitors. And a huge percentage of people studied for the Emperor Reduced actually were on ARNIs already, and it still showed benefit. So I think there's two different populations there. Um, I would say the Emperor's definitely studied at more advanced heart failure, although they were very compensated. Um, whereas the DAPA was more of like, is this going to prevent progression of the middle of the road heart failure? And I think both of those showed a lot of benefit. Um, the emperor reduced the amount of benefit it showed was a little bit less than the DAPA HF, primarily in the department of mortality. Um, but again, these are the people that are, are more advanced in their disease process and they're just going to die faster. And that's just sort of dividing out those two parts. Um, so I think on the spectrum, the thing that we have not studied really is the people in the class four group that are really decompensated. And, you know, th there's not a whole lot of studies that are done in that class because at that point, no company is going to get a lot of money out of that study because they, they're going to probably die regardless, um, unfortunately. So I think that there's, they're beneficial in all spectrums that we've studied so far, as long as they're compensated. Um, but I, I kind of am leaning more towards they're actually probably more beneficial in the little bit more advanced heart failure group, which is interesting. Carrie, I think there's uh, an interesting correlation here too when you're talking about the population that these studies are actually studying. For example, for the kidney population, the patients themselves, their CKD also isn't quite advanced. I think in Credence that average GFR was somewhere in the 50s, so that puts you at a CKD3 stage. And I think in the studies prior to that, that were cardiovascular um, outcomes, the GFRs were closer to like 75 or 80. And at that point, it's like, what even are we doing with that level of kidney disease? And so the newer studies are starting to look at lower GFRs getting down to 30. But um, I just found that there was a parallel to what you were saying with these, like, we're not having, we don't have great data yet for people who are really decompensated in either organ system. I think as we think about these medications, we're, we're hoping to use them in the more preventative sphere. So it's good to see that it's the patients who aren't already decompensated, you know, so badly um, that it does have uh, an effect. And 
Yeah, I mean, my money would say it probably wouldn't make a huge difference, kind of like you were saying, Carrie, like if they're already so sick and they're decompensated, then I just imagine these these medications do work over a little bit more of a of a protracted time frame. Um, so kind of in transitioning away uh, to a different topic, and I'll direct this one to Jen. We know the Credence uh, trial looked at canagliflozin, DAPA-HF looked at dapagliflozin, and Emperor Reduced looked at empagliflozin. What do you think? Are all SGLT2 inhibitors made equal? I love this question. I also don't think that there's ever going to be a perfect answer to this. And this is sort of just the sad state of affairs with how um, clinical trials are run. But you can imagine that there's probably never going to be a randomized control trial that puts these head to head because no pharmaceutical company is ever going to pay for that. And so I think the best that we can hope for is some retrospective cohort studies or observational data, which of course is fraught with its own problems. The community, I think both nephrologists and cardiologists sort of agree at this point that for the big primary endpoints for these studies, that all the SGL2 inhibitors are going to be roughly the same. Um, and I think where we might pick up some subtle differences might be in these like secondary outcomes or their side effects. Now, whether or not that's because there's actually differences in between these different drugs, or if it's just the way the studies are designed and now you're sort of, your hands are tied. So for example, you might say, you know, with DAPA-CKD coming out, you might say that dapagliflozin is the drug of choice um, in non-diabetic chronic kidney disease. But in actuality, that's just because that's the only trial we have at this point. Of course, we know that EMPA-kidney is coming out later this year, but um, for now, you might get stuck saying that dapagliflozin is the drug of choice for SGL2 inhibitors. Same thing with side effects, right? So in Canvas, there was this risk of amputation with canagliflozin, but I'm not sure if other studies have really looked at that. And then that side effects sort of got washed out with credence. So it'll be interesting to see. And of course, um, what I can say for sort of more concrete information is we know empagliflozin is the most selective for SGLT2, while canagliflozin is the least. And now they have sodagliflozin, which is a dual SGL2 and an SGLT1 inhibitor. Um, but I don't know if we know enough about the mechanism to really determine if this is going to make a difference. So overall, I kind of look at these a lot like I look at the direct acting oral anticoagulants, whereas overall, I think everyone would agree they're pretty interchangeable and equally effective in primary outcomes, but it's going to be provider preference, regional practices, and then which one is the insurance company going to actually cover? That's so interesting to me to think about, you know, all of these different drugs with the same suffix having differences in minutia that we just may never really see in real practice. But it does kind of get me wondering about how their efficacy and side effect profile is tied to this common mechanism of action and the physiology behind SGLT2 inhibitors' cardioprotective effects, especially in patients that do not have insulin resistance. We know that they function effectively as osmotic diuretics, dumping glucose and then sodium and water into the urine. But how is this playing out into the cardiovascular system? Can you comment on that? So this makes us you know, cardiologists, pre-cardiologists, really uncomfortable because everything we know about the heart and every management we have um, really makes sense. We sort of have understanding of what's going on and how to fix it. And our management totally models after the actual physiology that's going on. Um, 
And this is a little bit different. This is sort of approaching it backwards. We know these things work in heart failure. They've shown that now three trials, four, actually four trials in, and we don't know why. And that makes us super uncomfortable, but it's also a lot of potential to learn. So we, we're, we're working backwards. You did allude to the, the diuretic effect. And I think that's sort of what everyone is on the outside kind of hung their hat on who don't really know a lot about the heart failure history. But there's actually evidence that diuretics do not improve mortality and they don't improve hospitalization rate for heart failure either. Um, they're just purely symptom management. Now, it's important to know that the studies that were done on this were a long time ago. Um, and there's going to be no funding to support more studies because everyone's on diuretic and it's, you know, whatever. But I don't think that that's playing a role in the outcomes that were studied, which were basically mortality and um, heart failure hospitalization. So I think that's kind of important. Now, I do think that they have a similar effect as like ACE inhibitors. I kind of think of them in my mind as a little bit of a super ACE inhibitor uh, with regards to like afterload reduction, preload reduction, you're decreasing your oxygen demands and increasing your oxygen supply. So you're really just taking a lot of the, the work off the heart, um, which is basically what ACE inhibitors do, but they obviously work on top of ACE inhibitors and have improved mortality and heart failure and everything else on top of ACE inhibitors. So I think that that's a little bit of the mechanism, but I don't think it explains everything. And we also don't have a great idea of how that happens even. So I think there's, there's a lot of theories out there that are, that are being looked into. Uh, most of them are sort of around an inflammatory response. So a lot of them that Jen actually already alluded to, like the, the sodium hydrogen exchanger is sort of a big player here. Um, it decreases the intracellular sodium, it looks like, um, in myocytes and also the calcium, which actually sort of drives calcium into the mitochondria without using energy. And there's somehow that that decreases work and also decreases inflammation. Then there's also this idea that it decreases all the, the scar tissue that builds up, basically. It inhibits fibroblasts. Um, and that's a huge role in, in both remodeling after like heart attacks and heart failure, but also possibly could be a huge role in, in the pathophys of PEF-PEF that we're not really quite sure on. Um, and it does that through a few ways that it's already shown. There just hasn't been a lot of evidence to support it, but they have shown it in mice models of, of cardiomyocytes. So a lot of that's the VEGF, that it, it sort of upregulates VEGF, which reduces fibrosis. Um, it also looks like it, it sort of activates some macrophages that inhibits myofibroblast dif differentiation, and then you get the less fibroblast that are depositing the, all this fibrosis and collagen, and they've actually measured that quantitatively. So basically, that's probably most of the mechanisms come down to that as, what, as far as what they, they think is working with the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and it does seem to be breaking, you know, it, it's, it's helping the kidneys a lot. And I think that's really underrepresented in, in how it's helping the heart. Because again, this is a wholly, it's a closed loop system. That's why that's why the nephrologist and the cardiologist always argue and say it's their fault. It's their fault because everything that affects one, it automatically affects the other one. Um, so I think a lot of that is inhibiting the cardiorenal endpoint that really kind of gets into that snowball of, of why heart failure is so bad. You're totally singing my heart song right now. We can't, we don't always have to fight. The cardiologist and nephrologist don't have to fight. We should really be doing what they're doing now working together. It's but so much better this way. <laughs> it's so much better this way. So that's a, a couple of ways it's, it's theorized to sort of help with heart failure, although none of these, again, are, are solid and concrete. Um, and then the other big thing that we think is going on is that it, and that we can actually sort of measure, so we think it alters the energy consumption that goes on in the heart. Um, so we actually can see that the SGLT2 inhibitors promote glucagon release from the liver, and that actually triggers this whole cascade of um, basically producing lactate and beta-hydroxybutyrate, which, you know, 
I feel like everyone gets scared of hearing that, but it's actually a really efficient way to use energy because once the glucose is gone, the other alternative, if you're not breaking down into to lactic acid and beta hydroxy is, is you actually start having to break down um, all the free fatty acids. And we all actually know and have great evidence that those cause lipotoxicity and actually take a lot of energy to make the energy from them. Um, so the net effect is not great. Um, whereas consuming ketones and beta hydroxy in the heart is, is super efficient. It doesn't take energy to get the energy. And that's sort of altering that consumption. Um, again, sort of leads back to the increased oxygen supply and decreased demand um, and really just like decreasing everything that goes on in the heart and wears it out because it's using the most energy in the body. And then there's something to do with decreasing uric acid levels that really no one knows how that actually affects heart failure, but we know that quantitatively they're, they're lower when heart failure is better. Um, can I just jump in and sort of piggyback off what Carrie was talking about with the mechanism of action here? Because I think that everything that she said is totally true. And I think that a lot of times we're making assumptions that we know how it functions in the kidney. And I, I don't actually think that we know that answer for sure. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this tubuloglomerial feedback system, and that does seem to make a lot of sense. And so I'll just explain that really quickly. So SGLT2 inhibitors, of course, decrease glucose reabsorption, which subsequently decreases um, sodium reabsorption because they're a co-transporter. Um, when, when that happens, there's more sodium, uh, sodium chloride delivered to the macula densa, which is the macula densa senses, oh, there's more blood flow here. And um, then uh, vasoconstricts the afferent arterial of the kidney to decrease intraglomerular pressure. And so of course that makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you're putting less pressure into a glomerulus, it's less likely to cause it to have damage. But one interesting thing that people have been talking about is NSAIDs are medications that constrict the afferent arterial. And if that was the true mechanism of how SGL2 inhibitors worked, you could essentially say, well, why don't we just give NSAIDs to people every day? And that's obviously very not true. Um, and so I think that sort of blows a lot of uh, what we think we know out of the water. And then that's when we start to rely more on those other mechanisms that Carrie was talking about with the inflammation and the anti-porters and the fibrosis. I just have to say, you two are such an incredible duo and like really put the, this sort of cardiac and renal interplay uh, into practice. <laughs> we are best friends in real life and also best friends as coworkers. So it's a fun, uh, it's fun to battle each other. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, Carrie, you brought up how SGLT2 inhibitors in your mind were sort of like a super ACE inhibitor. And I thought that was such an interesting analogy because I, in all of the trials that we've looked at, at least in heart failure patients, the majority of those patients enrolled were already on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. Do you think SGLT2's inhibitor's efficacy would in any way be impacted if patients were not on standard of care therapy? That's interesting. Um, I haven't really thought about that, actually. They would be as effective. I'm guessing they would be because I don't think the mechanism is the same, although we don't know, right? We know how the RAS system works. We know that you know all of that makes sense as far as decreasing preload, afterload, angiotensin 2 has its own little thing on, on the coronaries and then also preventing remodeling. So we know how that works. I don't think that the SGLT2 are really working through that same mechanism. Um, so I think they're just augmenting the ACE inhibitors. But to sort of go off that is like, 
I honestly think I, I'm going to change my mind and say that they're the super, super ACE inhibitors because we already have a super ACE inhibitor now. And that's the, that's the ARNIs, the uh, angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors. And those are the new big thing in heart failure the last few years, actually. Um, and they are compared back to back, head to head with um, enalapril. And there's improvement with that one just in heart failure compared to enalapril. And then 30% of the people studied on the Emperor Reduce were already on one of the ARNIs. So not only were these people mostly on ACE inhibitors, but there was a large proportion of them that were already on the super ACE inhibitor and still had benefit on top of that. Um, and I think there was relatively equal benefit um, between like the RNAs versus the ACE that got the SGLT2s if you wanted to divide it that way, which I think again, sort of supports that they all sort of act on their own way. And there's so much interplay in the physiology of what's going on in heart failure and kidney failure that we sort of need all of them on board. It's a whole package. I love that. Um, I'd like to switch gears a little bit since we've been talking a lot about cardio protection, um, but it's really interesting to me that SGLT2 inhibitors also have demonstrated renal protection, at least in credence, in patients with diabetic renal disease. And even though credence excluded patients with non-diabetic renal disease, there's a new trial that came out called DAPA-CKD that just came out last month. It was looking at 4,304 patients with CKD, including individuals with GFRs below 30, randomized to either a placebo or dapagliflozin 10 milligrams daily for about two and a half years. And this trial found that the DAPA group had significantly lower risk of GFR decline, ESRD, and mortality from cardiovascular or renal causes. Is that sufficient evidence to suggest these SGLT2 inhibitors may also have a place in the management of non-diabetic renal disease too? You guys are totally spot on with this, these questions because this is like the hottest topic in nephrology right now. Um, because we know diabetic kidney disease is a huge, um, the number one cause of kidney disease, but like, what do we do with all these other people? Um, and so you, as you said, there, um, you've named one of the studies, but there's two big studies trying to answer this question. So the first one is DAPA-CKD, which of course showed that there was nephroprotective effect in non-diabetic kidney disease. But the second one's actually EMPA-Kidney, which I think was supposed to come out in June, 2020. So I'm not sure where exactly we are with that one. So far, I would agree that the data is looking good, but there are some limitations that I think we should sort of lay out here. So first of all, it's important to note that DAPA-CKD, it did look at non-diabetic patients, but still all of the CKD patients had proteinuria. So it's sort of saying that, yes, there was some signal that this could be helpful in non-diabetic CKD patients, but they have to have proteinuria. And that is not at all all CKD patients. Not all CKD patients have proteinuria. And then second, if you actually look at the exclusion criteria for DAPA kidney, they still excluded quite a few um, different chronic kidney disease populations. So they excluded polycystic kidney disease, they excluded lupus, and they excluded ANCA vasculitis, or sorry, ANCA-associated vasculitis. So I know Twitter's been really a buzz because they did include IgA nephropathy, which is like a huge win for that sort of population, but you're still missing a large population. And I know that they also excluded transplant patients. So it's hard to know exactly what to make of all this. I do think the data is starting to shape up for non-diabetic CKD with proteinuria. Um, but at the same time, I, I, a lot of nephrologists are saying, well, these studies are happening so quickly now that we're going to have an answer shortly. And so maybe if we just wait a year or two, then we'll really know before we have to like truly pull the trigger. 
I feel like maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like the non-protein urea CKD in my dense cardiac brain is kind of like the division of like going from the half path to the half breath. We're like, oh, wait a second. There might be this whole other group that has completely different pathophysiology. Is that totally dense? No, I love that question. I unfortunately not actually a nephrologist yet, so I don't really know how to how to think about that exactly. But yeah, that's sort of they do seem to be kind of two separate states, and I'm not sure. I'll let you know yeah. when I finish fellowship and we can uh, do this podcast again. <laughs> you know, similar to to half ref and half pep, all of these things are just assumed to be working in both, and we just like they have completely different pathophysiologies, and we have to study them separately. That okay, so that's actually a super interesting question because um, I just thought of this. They there was some. Um, I think a lot of it depends on what you think the mechanism is going to end up shaking out to be. So if you do think it's this infl inflammatory or energy saver model, it probably work, will work for most CKD. Um, but if you're going more off the diuretic part, I'm not entirely sure. The interesting thing is some group found that SGLT2 inhibitors like were found to preserve the cytoskeleton in podocytes. And so that in itself is an interesting question about how that affects proteinuria and sort of implies what Carrie's saying here that those might be uh, CKD with or without proteinuria might be two different disease states and we will find out. Well, the first thing I want to say is, yes, we'll definitely have to do a reunion episode once uh, we get some more data coming in and we can really, we can look back on today and say, you know, we were on the right track there and then maybe something else changed. Um, and I do think this, conversation is really a perfect segue into our, our next question. And it does kind of have to um, deal with, as we think about uh, chronic kidney disease and heart failure and separate patient populations with separate pathophysiologies, when we've thought about SGLT2 inhibitors from the cardio perspective, we've seen that in all of these trials, they really have only focused on heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients. And Carrie, you mentioned a little bit about this already in your discussion about the pathophys, but from the clinical side and the patient care side, is the cardiology community abuzz with the fact that this might be a starting place for therapies for HEFPEF, especially uh, given that it's it's been a, a pretty dry road uh, up until this point? Dry road is right. There is a huge graveyard with HEFPEF studies that we know work great in our HEF refers. Um, which is actually super interesting. And I love this topic of the division because it really just recently happened where we actually studied half peppers and we're like, wait a second, we've been giving them ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and spironolactone. And it turns out they aren't working for any of these people. Um, and so they studied those individually and all three of those actually do not work in half pep. And so then we're just throwing up our arms and saying, well, now, now what do we do for half pep? Um, and I think the question really goes down again, you know, I kind of hook myself on physiology, but we, we don't really know exactly the pathophys and the development of HEF-PEF itself. Um, we have some good ideas and we, we like to blame a lot of different things, but we don't actually really understand it as much as we understand HEF-PREF. Um, we know what it looks like. We know it presents clinically as heart failure, but down at the actual myocyte level, it's not at all the same whatsoever. Um, so this is kind of interesting and I'm actually super excited about the SGLT2s inhibitors in HEFPATH. And the more I like really research the SGLT2 inhibitors, I, I think it's maybe, you know, it, it targets the same mechanisms that we think are going on in HEFPATH. 
Um, so I guess our half-calfers we really define as these cardiometabolic populations. So the obesity, the diabetes, uh, the hypertension, we think that that's sort of driving the half-calf, although we don't really know for sure, right? Um, so basically we think that the main driving point of half-calf is probably a huge inflammatory response, uh, mostly driven by obesity really, um, but also a little bit of the diabetes as well. We know that both of those have a huge inflammatory response that I think is super underrepresented when we talk about obesity. And there's a lot of sort of chemical pathways that have been defined as the triggers for that. The adipokines, I, I'm sure that you've heard of, um, that's sort of triggered by, by obesity. And I think that the, there's a huge effect on how that is happening in the myocytes. And I sort of, the way I like to think about it, and I'm not sure how accurate this is, but um, is that when you have an MI, you have a little bit of... Um, scarring and inflammation at one little spot in the myocardium. And that's sort of what those ACE inhibitors are targeting is they're sort of preventing that from just turning into scar. And the way I think of it, obesity is that your whole heart is just under a ton of inflammation at all times. And so you're having all of those little spots that you have in half breath, but the whole myocardium simultaneously. It's, I think it's more of an infiltrative sort of picture than, than we think of it as. Um, so that being said, the SGLT2 inhibitors, all of the ideas that we have for why they work on heart failure really come down to a lot of inflammatory stuff. Um, and that's sort of, we have multiple different pathways that are sort of targeting that and that we think are working there. And that's exactly what we think is going on with HEFPATH. Um, so sort of like circling completely back and to the fact that we are uncomfortable as heart people, that we cannot explain why SGLT2 inhibitors work. Um, we're also uncomfortable by HEFPATH and why, why it happens. And I think that if this works in half-path, if this is finally a positive study for half-path, which would be like, holy moly, are you serious? Hasn't happened yet. Um, I think it's both gonna, I think it's gonna explain a lot of those findings together. I think it's both gonna be a light bulb moment for the, the half-path and a light bulb moment for why SGLT2 inhibitors work. So we'll just, I'm like sitting on the edge of my seat thinking about like, when is Emperor Preserved gonna come out? Cause we need it. We need something. Cause I mean, even like, Last week, there was like two studies that went to the graveyard for half path. And like, well, <laughs> there it is. And you know, negative studies are good, but we would like a positive study. <laughs> I'd like to confirm that Carrie is actually sitting on the edge of her seat waiting for this trial to come out. <laughs> Super anxious, really need it. Come on. Wouldn't that be something if, if this finally turns out to be a mechanism that we can go after and would really help a, a big, uh, population of patients who we've had to, like you say, throw our arms up currently. So uh, our last question uh, for this episode, uh, I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Um, and it does have to do with um, kind of, as we're awaiting more results uh, of trials like Emperor Preserved and, and also like official guidelines that um, are, are pending. Um, do you have any advice on how you think um, primary care physicians uh, them being, you know, uh, a portion of our audience on Green Mountain Medicine um, should approach the current evidence for using uh, SGLT2 inhibitors in their patients with heart failure or with CKD. This medication is relatively safe and it's the most powerful medication that nephrology has seen in the last 20 years. And I don't think that it requires exorbitant monitoring and or really too much change in someone else's other medications that would require a specialist to sort of be on board. And um, I've heard a lot of people worry in trying to start these that, you know, 
well, do the nephrologists own it? Do the cardiologists own it? Do the endocrinologists own it? And at the end of the day, I think that that can the can can kind of just keep getting kicked down the road and then no one's actually prescribing it. And I think that primary care physicians are in a perfect spot to really make a big difference in their patients' lives without necessarily needing the specialist. Of course, there's going to be more trials coming out and some of the excitement might be tampered in the future, but this is a really, really big positive signal. And I think it's um, time to start prescribing them. I know I don't like being the first person to prescribe a medication and I certainly don't want to be the last, but I think at this point, there's quite enough uh, data that we should um, get going. I think that the overall evidence that we have, and there's even a meta-analysis sort of combining the results of the, the DAPA-HF and the IMPA-reduced and saying that, you know, the overall consensus is that these help. We're not sure how, but they help a lot. They not just help a little bit, but they help a lot on top of all of the, you know, best things we already have. But what's the downfall and what are the risks? And I think that that's actually probably what a primary care doctor who is prescribing a specialty medication is going to worry about the most. They're not, they know it's beneficial, but they don't know what the risks are. And they're the ones that are going to be monitoring those. Um, so I think, you know, Jen can also speak to the, what happened to the creatinine and the GFR right after starting them. But um, sort of along the other risk factors that everyone is worried about are the GU infections and the UTIs. And also this like pseudo effect of maybe there's some gangrene, for years gangrene that can happen. I think probably the two biggest things to monitor and to educate about are going to be the, the fungal GU infections, um, which, you know, one of the studies did show that if you were educated on just washing and good hygiene um, twice a day, that actually that, that lowered the, the incidence of the GU infections. And then the other thing I would also educate them on is, is dietary indiscrepancies, because there is a small risk that is mentioned and sort of thought of as um, with the SLV2 inhibitors, that's uh, the new glycemic DKA. And that's one of the life-threatening ones, right? And the, the incidence was very low um, in both of those studies. But I think that the number that they reported, I've probably seen almost that number personally in the last year and a half. Um, so I think it's actually probably underreported. Um, and I think it very much depends on, on what you eat. Um, most of the people studied probably were not on a, a ketone diet. And I think that's actually I think it's high risk with ketogenic diets because now you're both forcing ketones to be made and produced by adding the SGLT2 inhibitor and you're only consuming ketones. And all of a sudden you have no glucose left to consume immediately because um, you're peeing it all out. Um, and so I think that that is certainly a risk. And I think that in, in those populations, that's probably the one time I would avoid, I would tell exercise caution for the PCPs to prescribe it in. Um, I don't think in my opinion that the GU infections, you know, knowing that the huge benefit on heart failure and CKA that it has, I don't think that should be a limiting factor. However, someone is strictly on a ketogenic diet, I think that should be taken to heart and advised against. Yeah, so the part that's important for primary care providers or really anyone prescribing this medication like Carrie alluded to was this acute drop in GFR when you are starting these medications. And um, I think there's been sort of conflicting information about how, um, how quickly or how long that drop lasts and even necessarily how big the drop is. One commonly cited number that I've seen is that you can expect the GFR to drop 
by about seven points, but usually it'll resolve itself within uh, within six to 12 months. And so it's a lot like ACE inhibitors and ARBs where you sort of see this um, jump in creatinine or drop in GFR, and it's not actually the loss of nephrons, but it's um, more of just a vascular state, um, and it usually sort of normalizes over time. So that might be scary because um, it might look like an AKI, but I think uh, just like with ACE inhibitors, once you get used to that and comfortable and seeing that number and you kind of monitor it with labs over the course of a year, I think that it's a very manageable thing to uh, get used to. And you know, a theme uh, throughout this episode is really the the marriage of the heart and the kidneys and, and their uh, ability to work together and their need to be addressed together uh, in considering the health of our patients. And I, I really can't think of any two uh, doctors and people who, who better uh, embody this marriage. So, so thank you both again for joining us. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai. And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.